Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for reading for us. Uh, great passage. Make sure you've got your Bible there. We've got a bit to cover. And uh, how about I pray as we come to this uh, really wonderful part of God's Word? Let me pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the speaking God, and we thank you for the truths you revealed to us this evening. And we pray that as we hear your word, you would transform us in light of what we read, that you would make us, by your Holy Spirit, more like Jesus, your Son, to the praise of your glory. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, it's it's really a a great chapter for me to have as a a last sermon. It wasn't planned this way. Phil and I didn't sit down and think, hey, Acts 9, that's good. Let's do that for the last week you're here. It's just how it worked out. It could have been Ananias and Sapphira, if you remember Acts chapter 5, which would have made for a very interesting last sermon. But it's such a great chapter as a last sermon because there are two incredible things we see here. For one, this is what it's all about in the end, isn't it? So just think about what we've just read. If you strip back the layers and the riches of Scripture, what do you see in this chapter? You see a God who's mighty to save. You see our God who's gracious and merciful to save. And you see sinful people who desperately need to be saved. And in this chapter, we see this work of a gracious God who softens hard hearts, who humbles proud sinners to save them for his glory. And whilst uh, part of what we'll see with Saul is unique, Saul is, is a very unique case in many ways, but in saying that, every follower of the Lord Jesus had their hearts softened by God. Uh, every person in this room who calls Jesus Lord has been humbled in their, in, their proud, in their proud sin, and they've been saved for the glory of God. So that's one of the incredible things we'll see in this passage. But the second thing is that God would choose Saul. Uh, And Saul becomes, humanly speaking, one of the most prominent figures of all of time. Uh, This Saul, it's the same Saul who's the Apostle Paul. So Saul is his Hebrew name, Paul, his Greek name. It's the same guy. And humanly speaking, he's one of the most prominent figures of all time. He just just is. He's changed our world. He's changed our Western world. It's just fact. But even more than that, spiritually speaking... Saul is God's instrument for the message about Jesus. So if you turn to the front of your Bible right now and looked up the contents page and looked under New Testament, half, almost half of all of the New Testament, God uses Paul to write. God uses the Apostle Paul to reveal to us. And in this chapter, the Apostle Paul is both saved and commissioned. So it's a hugely important chapter. There are two things I want us to see in this chapter, that God is mighty to save and that God chooses Saul to be that Apostle Paul. So we're going to jump straight in because there's lots to cover. And uh, make sure you've got your outline there that will help you. But as we start, I just want us to remember what we know of Saul so far. Because many of us, we, you know, we're familiar with his story. We know the whole Saul-Paul thing, and, and we know he becomes the Apostle Paul. Forget that for the moment. Okay, Forget what you know about Acts chapter 9. We need to realize what Saul was like before. And realize what he's like up to this point. Because to put it bluntly, Saul was a nasty piece of work. He just was. Uh, do you remember what we read back in chapter 7? So in chapter 7, do you remember there were the, there was those young men who were stoning uh, Stephen to death? And do you remember what those young men were doing, before what they did before they took off their coats? As they took off their coats, they took them off and they lay their coats, their garments, at the feet of Saul. And that image that you have there back in chapter 7, it's a horrible image because they took their coats off so they could better throw the stones. 
And they took their coats off because as they, as they stoned Stephen, they wouldn't want to get blood on their garments. That's the image. And what they were doing in that shocking image is putting their garments at the feet of Saul. Why? Because he was their leader. He was the one leading them in putting Stephen to death. And worse still, if you go back to uh, chapter 8, verse 3, just go back there for a sec, chapter 8, verse 3. You see, you read there, chapter 8, verse 3, that Saul was the chief persecutor of the church of Jesus in Jerusalem. And you read there that he was ravaging the church. He would go from house to house in Jerusalem, showing no mercy whatsoever. It didn't matter if, if there were men or women. He'd go from house to house to house, looking for any people who followed Jesus and arrest them. He was so obsessed. He was so driven. He was devout to get rid of these Christians. And as we get to chapter 9, Saul was so obsessed that now he turns to the surrounding cities. So his dirty work's done in Jerusalem, and now he thinks, I'm going to go to the next towns to get more of them. So look at where we start. Acts chapter 9 now, verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 1 says this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus. Why? So that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, to the way of Jesus, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And just so you've got your geography right, Damascus is 240 kilometers away from Jerusalem. Uh, and there were no cars, right? No, no buses, no trains. It was about a week's worth of walking to get there. That's how driven Saul was. That's how devout he, he, he was. He didn't just go to the village next door. He went to the, name, the main next town just so he could put an end to the way of Jesus. That's how obsessed he was. And it's really important that we grasp just how nasty a piece of work Saul is at this point. Don't, don't miss that in what we read here. Don't, don't just think, oh, yes, Saul, Apostle Paul, isn't that great? No, no, no. Saul at this point, a nasty piece of work. Saul, before, he hated Jesus. He hated the followers of Jesus literally to their death. He wanted them killed. That's what happened when you went in prison in those days. You'd die there. And we have to get that straight because then what we read next becomes truly incredible. See, look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. And this is point 2 now. Saul humbled. So verse 3, as he, Saul, traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. And just as a little aside, isn't it just this, this great little comfort here to know that Jesus unites himself with his suffering people? And do you notice what Jesus says? Because Saul is on his way to arrest followers of Jesus He's on his way to persecute Jesus' followers, not Jesus directly. And then Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? It's this lovely moment where we know that Jesus is united with his people in their suffering. But the first thing I want us to realize here is that this event, it's real. Uh, it's, it's a physical, supernatural event that happens. So don't, don't imagine Saul having a dream. Uh, don't imagine Saul uh, you know, being exhausted and falling on the ground and fainting and falling into a trance and having some sort of experience like that. No, no, a light literally flashed around him. He, he heard clearly the voice speak to him. The whole thing was so real and tangible that, that Saul physically fell to the ground. 
He, he was knocked over by it physically. And what an appropriate position for Saul to be brought to, for him to, to be there lowly on the ground, to be humbled, to be knocked over as Jesus then speaks to him. And I really want us to, to slow down at this point and put ourselves in the shoes of Saul. Just imagine you were him. Imagine you were like him, hell-bent on getting rid of Jesus and his followers. See, imagine how Saul would have felt when the words came, Who are you, Lord? And the response came, I'm Jesus. That's who I am as Lord. I'm Jesus, the one you've been persecuting. Uh, I remember a a while ago in uh, early high school, my mum and my sister and I had just come back from uh, Rockdale Plaza. Uh, we just come home from having lunch there. And uh, when I got home, I had this this kind of deep sinking feeling. You know that deep sinking feeling you get sometimes? Uh, Because I'd remembered I'd left my retainer, you know, the the plate that you kind of stick in your mouth. I just remembered that I left it on my lunch tray back at Rockdale Plaza. And uh, I hadn't had the retainer for long. And, you know, I grew up in a family that by no means was wealthy. Uh, you know, we got by, we were fine, but we, we didn't have any extra excess money whatsoever. Uh, I think my parents uh, paid 400 bucks for this thing. So it was a lot of money for our family. And I remember getting home and standing there and recalling, hold on, I got my retainer out because you can't eat with it in and put it in a napkin. And I wrapped it in a napkin and I put it on my tray. And then I finished my lunch and I took my tray to the center bin in the food court and tipped it all into the bin. And as I recalled that, all sorts of uh, not-so-choice words came out of my mouth. I wasn't a Christian yet, just so you know. Uh, My gut sunk and my mom and my sister looked at me and they just thought, what are you swearing your head off for? What's happened? What's going on? And I was horrified at what I'd done because, again, I knew how much it cost my family. I knew that when my dad got home, I'd be in big trouble. Uh, somewhat disgustingly, we drove back to Rockdale Plaza and I went to that center bin in the food court and I went digging through it and I found it wrapped up in a napkin. And uh, I can't believe I found it, but I cleaned it twice a day, every day for a week before I dared kind of stick it back in my mouth. It was disgusting. But you know that, you know that sinking feeling? Like We've probably all experienced it at some point, that sinking feeling when your gut just drops and something dawns on you and you go, oh, no, I've made a mistake. I got it wrong. I did the wrong thing. Just imagine Saul. He'd been ravaging the church, arresting people, persecuting Jesus and his followers. And then the voice comes to him, I'm, I'm Jesus. Who's your Lord? Who's the Lord that's talking to you? It's Jesus. The one you've been persecuting, the one you hate so much, the the Lord and King of Stephen whom you stoned and had killed. You see, you cannot get a greater sinking feeling than that, than realizing that Jesus is King and he is Lord and you've been rebelling against him with all your might and all your strength. You see, there's a sad reality that millions on the day when Jesus comes back to judge, millions Millions will have that sinking feeling. I got it wrong. Jesus is Lord. He is the Son of God. He is the one and only King. And I rejected Him. You see, don't let that be you. If you are here and Jesus is not yet your Lord and Savior, know that He is King and He is Lord and change. Turn to Him. 
Don't have that sinking feeling the day Jesus comes back, because that day will be too late. You see, what we have here is this incredible grace and mercy of God on display that he would save someone like Saul, that, that he would give Saul the time and the chance to repent and to seek forgiveness and to pray. You see, if ever you want an example of salvation having nothing to do with you or with me, with our good works or good deeds or good intentions or good reputation or good whatever, look at Saul. Humanly speaking, he was the least deserving of Jesus' mercy. He went to house to house. He went from town to town. People would open the door and see Saul there and their faces would go pale and blank in fear. And as Saul saw their faces, he did not care. He showed no mercy. He arrested them if they belonged to Jesus. And yet Jesus appears to him on that road to Damascus. And God was pleased to save him. You see, part of what we learn at this point is that if Jesus can save and spare Saul, he can save anybody in this room, any one of you, any one of us, regardless of what we've done. And he can save your hardened father, and he can save your hardened mother or your brother or your sister or the friend who mocks or the co-worker that you know, rolls their eyes every time a Christian gets mentioned. He can, he can save the most devout of atheists. God can save them all. See, here's how uh, J.C. Ryle puts it. And I had to quote J.C. Ryle one more last time uh, for those who are used to it. He says this. He says, There is nothing in Scripture, nothing in God, nothing in man's condition which warrants anyone in saying, I can never be converted. There lives not the man or woman on earth on whom it could be said their conversion is an impossibility. Anyone, however sinful and hardened, Anyone may be converted. Why? How can Ryle be so, so sure of this? Well, he says, he goes on, conversion is a possible thing because of the almighty power of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is as easy to him to create new hearts out of nothing as it was to create the world out of nothing. It is as easy to him to breathe spiritual life into a stony, dead heart as it was to breathe natural life into the clay of which Adam was formed. You see, our God is mighty to save. Even a wretch like Saul. Even to humble the hardest of hearts like Saul. And don't we see Saul humbled? Which is the right response to anyone who's confronted with the Lord Jesus for the first time. It's humility. See, look at verse 8. Look how humbled he was. So Jesus had spoken to him by this point. And in verse 8, Then Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. Massive contrast. So he, he was heading towards the, the, uh, Damascus with his you know, chest out and puffed out, seeing clearly, seeing clearly against Jesus, knowing what he wanted to do, and then he was humbled. And now he's blind. And now he's being led like a child by the hand because he can't see and he's so dependent. And he doesn't eat, he doesn't drink. For three days, such is the shame of his sin. Such is how the Lord Jesus brings him low. And if you just look quickly at verse 11, what was he doing for those three days? I think it's only right. Verse 11, he was praying for those three days. And you can only guess what he prayed. Like just Again, we have to imagine ourselves being Saul somewhat here. What would he have prayed? Forgive me, Jesus. Have mercy on me, even though I don't deserve it. 
Forgive me for my own self-righteousness. Perhaps he even prayed for those followers of Jesus that now sat in prison because of him. Because again, if you're, if you're thrown in prison in that day, often you die there. Maybe he prayed for them. Maybe he prayed for Stephen's family, who now were without Stephen. We don't know, but Saul was humbled and he was changed by the Lord Jesus. And what happens next is that we meet another man who, like Saul, was changed. Differently to Saul, but nonetheless changed by Jesus. And uh, we're up to point three now, Saul received. And uh, from verse 10, we read about this man, Ananias. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because there's Ananias and Sapphira back in chapter 5. Hopefully you put two and two together. Different Ananias. If you remember chapter 5, what happens to Ananias? Not the same guy, right? Different Ananias. Must have been a popular name. Uh, But what Ananias does here is receive Saul eventually. So you have a look at verse 10. So at verse 10, the Lord calls out to Ananias in a vision. uh, And then in verse 11, he says to him, verse 11, get up. And go to the street called Straight, to the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. And uh, just a quick side point, uh, remember the Bible, real history, real people, real places uh, up on the screen there. That's Straight Street in Damascus, in Syria. If you want to go there today, you still can. Just keep remembering the Bible, real people, real places, real events. But what happens is Jesus tells Ananias to go to Saul. And if you look at verse 13, Ananias, he, he was reluctant, right? And I think, fair enough. Fair enough, right? Just imagine what he would have said to Jesus. Uh, Jesus, uh, haven't you heard that, that Saul is the guy that's coming here to arrest me? He, he's coming here to take my family. He, he's coming here to ravage our church and, and my brothers and sisters in Christ to put us in prison. I think, he, I think what you mean, Jesus, is flee from him, not, not go to him. Is that right, Jesus? Well, look at what Jesus says in verse 15. And this is a very significant verse for a couple of reasons. So make sure you look at it. Verse 15. But the Lord Jesus said to Ananias, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and the Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And to this point, we realize that Saul is being commissioned and appointed to be Saul the Apostle, Paul the Apostle. And Luke puts this here for us, and this is recorded for us in the grace of God with all the detail that we get so that we might know that Jesus chose Saul and appointed him to be the Apostle, to be the Apostle, yes, to Israel, but especially to Gentiles. Because my guess is probably 99% of us here are Gentiles. We're not Jewish. We're non-Jews. And as you read on in the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, with with all the letters that that the Apostle Paul goes on to write, it's crystal clear that he was sent to be the Apostle to the Gentiles. Because that's how the message spread. And again, if you know anything about Paul, as he goes to the Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire, he suffers massively, greatly for the name of Jesus. And at that point, we have to stop and praise God for that. Praise God that he chose Saul. Praise God that he sustained him amongst all his suffering for the sake of the gospel that he kept going. Because the fact is, if Paul didn't, if God did not send him, we would not be here. We would not know the Lord Jesus like we do. Praise God. The other reason why this verse is so significant is because uh, Jesus puts Ananias straight. 
And Ananias is really interesting because God didn't need to use Ananias. God, Jesus could have appeared to Saul and heard the Lord Jesus, and Jesus could have said, go, you're going, you're going to be my instrument in, in, uh, to the Gentiles and to the nations, off you go. But he doesn't. He uses Ananias in this process. It's a really lovely thing because look at what happens. See, look, in verse, uh, look at verse 17 and 18. It's a really lovely thing because Saul hears from Ananias and he regains his sight and he's filled by the Holy Spirit and then he's baptized. And we don't know for sure, but I assume that Ananias is the one who baptizes him. And so Saul in this moment becomes a follower of Jesus through Ananias. And what I particularly love is what Ananias says when he first gets to Saul. See, look at what Ananias calls Saul when he gets to him in verse 17. He calls him brother Saul. And if you just think on that for a second, that is, that is incredible. Saul came to arrest him. See, it's such a beautifully emotional response. I can imagine Saul blinded, praying, asking for forgiveness, thinking, what's the Lord going to do to me? I understand if he would just chop my head off right now because I deserve it. And yet Ananias comes along and he says to him, brother Saul. I can imagine Saul bawling his eyes out, saying to Ananias, Ananias, I came here to hurt you. I came here to arrest you and your family and your fellow brothers and sisters in the church of Jesus in Damascus. And you call me brother? Brother Saul? See, it's incredible, isn't it? But that's the gospel. That's what Jesus does to people. That's what Jesus should do to all of us. So change us, so transform us. Brother Saul. See, sometimes I wonder if we can be a little bit too much like the reluctant Ananias. You know how sometimes Christians say of other people, you know, you're in a group and they're saying, oh, you should meet that person over there. They're not a Christian yet, but they're so lovely. They make such a good Christian. They're really nice. Maybe we should, you know, invite them around to our house or something, or maybe we should make a big effort to get them along to church because they're so lovely. They're like, they'd make a great Christian. And in one sense, good, share, share the gospel with anyone. But if God can save a wretch like Saul, he can save anyone. We should be able to think of anyone and see how the Lord Jesus would be pleased to save them. See, the Christian is one who receives any who calls on the name of Jesus. And I wonder, maybe in our churches in Sydney, maybe our churches in Sydney need to be filled a little bit more with forgiven criminals and a little bit more with recovering addicts, with people who aren't as well-to-do. Because that's the gospel, isn't it? That's the gospel that saved a wretch like Saul and that Ananias comes to call brother Saul and receive him. You see, Saul was humbled, but Ananias was changed as well. And he, he saw the extent of the mercy and grace of God and how the mercy of God knows no bounds. God is pleased to save even someone like Saul. But very briefly now on point four before I wrap up, Point four, Saul transformed. And we can't look at verses 20 to 31 in much detail. Read it again later. It will be uh, for your good. But it's just, it's worth noting how much and how quickly Saul changed. Uh, so he goes from being the persecutor of Jesus to the preacher of Jesus immediately. Look at verse 19. So verse 19, immediately Saul began proclaiming Jesus in the Jewish synagogues. And in verse 22, he confounded the Jews. And, and you see here just the sovereign choice 
of, uh, of Saul by, by God. Because Saul, he was a Jew. Uh, he, he was a well-educated Jew. He grew up under um, a rabbi called Gamaliel. So he was well-trained in the Old Testament. And so it's no surprise to see that he goes off and, and shares with the Jews how Jesus is the Old Testament Messiah. So you see that in verse 22. He proves that Jesus is the Christ. And he's well-equipped to do so. But the persecutor Saul doesn't only become the preacher, the persecutor also becomes the persecuted. And there's this lovely little irony I think is worth, uh, worth seeing. Go to, look at verse 29. Because in verse 29, you see that Saul there was conversing and debating with the Hellenistic Jews. Uh, so basically, they're the Greek Jews. So he was sharing Jesus with the Greek Jews in Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, and as, as he does that, you read in verse 29, they wanted to kill him. They didn't like him sharing about Jesus to them. But the last person in Acts to converse and debate with the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek Jews in Jerusalem, do you remember who it was? Anyone? Who's game enough to have a guess? Stephen. You have this lovely little irony. Stephen was sharing Jesus with the Hellenistic Jews in Jerusalem, and he was killed. And Saul was the one there approving the death of Stephen. And then you have this wonderful change where now Saul is the one back in Jerusalem after all that great persecution had happened, sharing Jesus with those same people who now want to kill him. It's a great transformation. See, all that's to say that Saul, in being humbled before Jesus and turning to Jesus, was radically transformed, which is what should happen for every believer of Jesus. But let me wrap up with a few things we learn and some final words. Uh, I wonder if the grace and mercy of God that we see in this chapter can make us feel just a little bit uncomfortable, if we're honest. Uh, and again, I, you know, we've got to remember, Saul, Saul's a nasty piece of work. I think we, we just remember too much of the Apostle Paul and forget how bad Saul was. But I just want us to imagine for a moment, imagine we were the church back then. And imagine, don't turn around, but imagine right now Saul came in the back of our church with, with an army of other men to ravage our church here. Uh, imagine you turned up to gospel team on Wednesday night and someone who's usually in your group wasn't there and you ask, oh, where are they tonight? Oh, actually, Saul got them. They're in prison. Or imagine you get home and, and the neighbor tells you, Saul came to your house. Lucky you weren't there because he knows you're following Jesus. He would have arrested you. See, imagine people from our church sat in prison because Saul had come and taken them away. See, imagine that and imagine how angry that would make you feel. And then God goes and saves Saul. See, how would you feel that God showed mercy upon Saul who did that to our church, to your friend, to your brother, to your sister? That God forgave Saul, that he revealed Jesus to him. You see, if we're honest, part of our initial gut reaction is to think that's not fair. See, Saul doesn't deserve anywhere near to be saved. He's undeserving. How could God save him? See, our gut reaction would be there's an injustice that's occurred. Why would he save him? How could he do that? He's a wretch. And there's two things we need to learn from that sort of reaction. The first is that we ourselves are absolute wretches before God. See, we are, if we're honest, if we understand our sin rightly, 
and are honest before God about our thoughts and our actions and our deeds, we're just like Saul. See, part of the problem we think, of course it makes sense for God to save me because, you know, sure, I'm a sinner, but I'm not that bad. Like, I get why God would save me. I'm not like Saul. Sure, I don't deserve it, but I'm not like Saul. It makes sense. We, we say that to ourselves. I'm not that bad, but no. See, I am an absolute wretch like Saul. We are undeserving like Saul. We are as fallen as Saul. I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago and Philip Jensen was interviewed. Uh, most of you would know who Philip is. Uh, if you don't, he's someone that God's used uh, mightily around our Sydney circles for, for many decades. And uh, Philip is in his late 70s now. But in this interview, he said that the older he gets, the more he realizes what a wretched man he is, what a great sinner he is. And when he shared, you know, this wasn't just kind of a well-meaning uh, well-prepared theological answer. He was asked, what's, what do you, what's the thing you found the hardest as, as you've lived the Christian life? And he just said, the older I get, the more I grow in my knowledge of God, the darker I have of the sense of my own sin. And whilst that scares me a little, because I already know my sin so well, and I'm nowhere near 70 yet, what Philip said is true. The more I grow as a Christian, the more I realize just what a wretch I am. And I know these are not the prettiest of our final words, but brothers and sisters, do not forget your sin. Do not forget that we, just like Saul, are so undeserving of the grace of God. You see, before the Lord Jesus brought you to himself, just like Saul, all of us were obsessed, driven, devout rebels before God. So maybe today, maybe tonight, maybe tomorrow, spend some time just reflecting on your wretchedness. I know it's a horrible thing to do, but sometimes we must. Reflect on it. And just come to realize that, no, it doesn't make sense that God would save a wretch like you because you don't deserve it like I don't deserve it. Because it's only as we do that that when then we understand just how mighty God is to save. Just how gracious he is that he would save us. See, John Newton, who himself was a great wretch, he was a slave trader, and uh, John Newton's the one who wrote that amazing uh, hymn, Amazing Grace. He said this, and like Philip in his old age, he said, Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great saviour. And we need to hold those two things together in our Christian lives. Like Saul, we are great sinners. Like Saul, we have a great saviour. Which means anyone, even you, even me, can be saved. And as we realize this, there's two incredible things that I think happens. As you realize your wretchedness and the glory of God in saving you and his mightiness to save, we become like Ananias's. Uh, we become those who then welcome and receive all sorts of wretched sinners just like us. And, and we don't unfairly judge one another because we know we're all in the same boat. We know we're in it together. We know we're saved sinners together. And so what do we do? We help one another. And we pray for each other and we speak the word of God to one another. See, this thing here, this that we have, this church, the church of God, it's such a wonderful thing. It's a family that we have that we've received each other into. And we rightly call each other brother and sister and help each other in our sin. Help each other to keep living for Jesus, remembering how much he's done to save us. But the second incredible thing that happens when we realize our sin and the mighty power of God is that we're transformed. 
You see, the Apostle Paul was so effective in the purposes of God, and he went on to do all that he did in the sovereign control of God, but he did it because he never forgot what a great sinner he was, and he never forgot how mighty a great Savior Jesus is. And that transformed him. And that's what transformed us. You see, Jesus softened your hard heart. He humbled your proud sin. He saved you. And that is a miracle. That is a mighty work of God. And so let that truth occupy your mind every minute of every hour of every day and never forget it. Never let it leave you. And as you do, God will continue to transform you to make you realize your sin and to come to him in repentance and to praise him and find great joy in forgiveness because he's mighty to save. Well, let me pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are pleased to save even wretches like us. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you give us one another to help us to live that Christian life. And Father, we thank you for your sovereignty in choosing Saul, who because of him and because of the way you used him, that we know of the Lord Jesus and we heard the gospel. And we pray we might be just as transformed as him to live for the glory of your Son. It's in his name we pray.